take the, uh, the heat wave that we, we had, and now we just need to pray for uh, more rain. We are certainly very dry. We're thankful for the rain that we did have, but uh, we could use some more for sure. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter number 9. Mark chapter number 9. And we'll begin reading verse number 14. Remember the disciples, Peter, James, and John, along with Jesus, are now just coming back from off the mountain of transfiguration. Uh, they had just seen a glorious sight as Jesus transfigured before them. They were able to catch a glimpse of his glory. So now as they're coming back down from the mountain, going back and meeting the other nine disciples, verse 14 tells us, And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him and greeted him. And he asked the scribes, What are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And where, wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid, becomes stiff. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, Jesus answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. And so he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and, and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and Enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him and became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the, into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. 
I want to preach to you this morning on this thought from desperation to restoration. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful, Lord, for your word. We're grateful, Lord, for this gathering today. Lord, the beauty of brothers and sisters in Christ worshiping in one place. Lord, it's just a, a glimpse of the glory to come when we all, all of your children, shall be gathered around the throne in heaven, worshiping forever and ever. And Father, I pray as we look at this passage of Scripture, Father, I pray that you would help us to apply these truths to our heart. I pray, Lord, you'd help us to listen. But Lord, not only listen with our ears, but Lord, listen intently that we'd be able to receive your word in meekness. Father, we love you, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. It has been said, and it is very true, that the Christian life is a life of faith. The Christian life is a life of faith. The Christian, the believer, are those who walk by faith and not by sight. It is Paul who said, uh, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Uh, The writer of Hebrews said, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And he goes on to say that faith, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. Peter wrote this concerning faith. He said this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, unspeakable and full of glory. And so listen, beloved, Christians believe in God whom they have not seen. We believe in Christ whom we have not seen. We believe in the Holy Spirit of that which we have not seen. We believe in justification in something that we cannot visibly see. We believe that there is coming an eternal life for those who are in Christ, in heaven, but yet we cannot see. The Christian life is a life of faith. Believers are saved by faith. We are sanctified by faith, and we hold to the hope of glory by faith. And we know that faith is not perfect, but it is sufficient. And not because it is a human ability, but rather it is because it is a gift of God. And we know that it is not blind faith that we hold on to. But rather, it is a proven faith, a faith that is anchored in the testimony of God's holy word. Now, as we consider our text this morning, we know and understand that for more than two years at this point, the disciples had walked by sight. They had walked by sight. They had actually been in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had watched him. They have heard him teach with their own ears. 
They have witnessed the miracles with their eyes. They have lived up until this point by sight. And soon, however, they would have to learn to live by faith, right? Because very soon, Jesus was going to die. He was going to be resurrected, and then he was going to ascend in heaven. And after this, they would have to live by memory. They would have to live uh, as, uh, by memory and by the uh, empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But no longer would Jesus be physically present with them once he ascended back to heaven. And so as the Lord continues to move toward Jerusalem, and he's getting closer and closer as we get to Mark chapter 9, and as he moves toward Jerusalem, he's getting closer to his death and to his resurrection and ascension. He taught his disciples a series of lessons that were, do, that were designed to help them as he knows that he's about to leave. And those lessons were really bracketed by lessons on faith. And this text of Scripture that we're reading this morning is really that first lesson. Jesus was not present when the incident began. We read our Scripture. Jesus is just now coming back from being gone for about six days on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so during this incident, Jesus was not there. And so the disciples were challenged then to what? They were challenged to walk by faith. And sadly, they failed miserably. The disciples, the nine that were left, were trusting in themselves. They were trusting in their procedures. They were trusting in their methods rather than trusting in Christ alone. But this passage highlights really the concerns about the church's overconfidence that we have in the American church in our own abilities, particularly regarding growth and evangelism. The American church is losing ground and has been losing ground for decades. And this is so true when you look at the the society as a whole, when you look at the rise of such sin that used to be uh, seen as uh, provocative and with something that would be hidden behind closed doors, now is absolutely in our faces. The society is in bad shape. Why is that? Because, for the most part, churches in America are in, are in a bad shape. And so this passage of Scripture really helps us to recognize the church's crisis today and emphasizing the thing that we need to do the most is not create some new method, not some new program, not read some latest church growth guru's book, but get back to the basics. Get back to the basics. Well, let's notice this very quickly. Notice the, first of all, the significance of the struggle. The significance of the struggle. 
Before we look at our text, I want us to look at the contrast that Mark is setting up before us between the transfiguration and what the disciples saw there and what is actually happening here in the valley on the other side of the mountain, on the bottom of the mountain. Uh, John MacArthur says this, The transfiguration happened on a mountain, this event in the valley below. In the transfiguration there was glory, but here in our passage of Scripture there is suffering. In the transfiguration, God dominated the scene. Here in our passage, Satan dominates the scene. In the transfiguration, the Heavenly Father was pleased. In this incident, an earthly father was tormented. In the transfiguration, there was a perfect son. But here in our passage, there was a perverted son. At the transfiguration, fallen men were in holy wonder. In this story, there was a fallen son in unholy horror. As we look at Mark chapter 9, verse 14, it tells us, And when he came to the disciples, when Jesus came to the disciples, again, because Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was absent from the other nine disciples. They had been without the physical presence of Jesus Christ. And we notice that while he was gone, the rest of Mark chapter 9, verse 14 tells us, and when Jesus came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. They were arguing with his disciples. And no doubt these disciples, these nine disciples, were being heckled. They were being taunted by these jeering, self-righteous scribes because the scribes had just witnessed the disciples attempting to cast out this demon, but they could not do it. They failed. And so the scribes were then deriding them. They were mocking them for the lack of power. And they were no doubt blaspheming the Lord Jesus Christ as well. I can just hear them saying, hey, you guys are phonies. You guys are weak and phonies just like your master is. But we learn here is that the disciples are confronted with a very strong enemy that presents at least three different problems. Number one, we see the problem of demons. The problem of demons. Verse 15. It says, Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed, and running to him, greeted him. And when he asked the scribes, What are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And so this demon had so taken over this boy, this young son, that it made this boy unable to say a word. Now you can just imagine the heartache. You can imagine the, the, the pain and the turmoil that this father was going through, watching his son 
do the very things that we have seen described here in our text. But this demon has taken literally the voice of his son. He is unable to speak. And so this, this, this demon is so strong, it defeats nine disciples. And so it tells us that numbers are not necessarily everything, right? But it also tells us that this is not your run-of-the-mill demon that they're messing with. And listen, just as there are different ranks in angels and different powers given into the holy angels, there are different ranks and strengths with the unholy angels. And this one here was a very powerful demon. And so we have the problem of demons. In verse 18, we see the problem of death. This father continues in the first part of verse 18. It says, wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid, becomes very stiff. And so this demon here is doing what satanic forces do, and that is to destroy and distort. The demon wants to destroy this little boy. But all of this points to the fact that the purpose of demonic possession is to destroy and to distort the image of God in man and man. God made man in his image. And that means a lot of things. But one of the things it means is that, that mankind has the ability to reason. Mankind has the ability uh, to think and to rationalize different choices. We also have a moral compass about us. We have a conscience. But it also tells us that we're made for fellowship. We are made in the image of God. It means that we are made to talk and made to, to laugh and to smile and to hug. And all of this was taken away from this little boy. A demon who wanted to mar and destroy the very thing that God created and pervert it. Notice there's a problem of defeat. Verse 18 again, it says, So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. Now, those are some four sad words right there. They could not. But they could not. The disciples' inability to cast out this demon is very significant. Uh, for one, the witness and testimony of Jesus, uh, of his message that, that the kingdom of God was coming. The gospel message was absolutely harmed. Another thing is that the father begins to question even Jesus' power. So there's a problem of defeat. But we notice in verse 19 that the disciples are rebuked. Verse 19, he answered him, Jesus answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long I shall I be with you? 
how long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And so Jesus, his initial response is both a diagnosis of the disciples' problems, why they could not uh, cast out this demon, but also it was a, an emotional cry from the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the first word, oh, was a word that was rarely used. But it is a word that is filled with uh, deep emotion. And as he's speaking to the crowd, and he's specifically here speaking to his disciples, he says, oh, faithless generation. In other words, he's saying, you disciples are just like the rest of this generation. And that had to sting. That had to hurt. And he asked the question, how long shall I bear with you? How long shall I endure you? In other words, will you ever learn? Will you ever get it? So Jesus here is irritated. He's annoyed with his disciples and their lack of faith. His disciples here in Mark chapter 9 failed. But if you remember, Jesus had earlier commissioned his disciples in Mark chapter 3 where they went out to preach and to have power and heal sicknesses and to cast out demons, and they were successful then. They were successful in Mark chapter 3, but now here, Mark chapter 9, after a week of his absence, they are absolutely powerless They cannot cast out this demon from this boy. Now, why did his disciples like the power needed to cast out this demon? Well, their failure is not because they didn't try, right? They did try. They did their absolute best to try to cast cast out this demon. Also, the problem was not unbelief. The problem is that they believed in the process, they believed in the procedure, the program of it all, as being the means that would actually cast out the demon. They believed in themselves because, after all, they had done it before. It worked before. The problem is they were not resting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Their confidence was in their own power or their words or the methods they used rather than in God who gave them the power to work miracles. And because of this, they are overly self-confident rather than consciously God-confident. And when we think about this, Don't you agree that these words are fitting words for the church today? Which is so well equipped. The church today with all of its programs, with all of its richness and wealth and funds. A church today that is so instructed in doctrine, yet so powerless 
before the forces of evil today. We see the significance of the struggle. Notice, secondly, we see the supreme Savior's sovereignty. We see the supreme Savior's sovereignty. Verse 20 says, Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And no doubt here the scribes, They haven't left. They're just waiting in silent skepticism. The demon openly here rebels against the Lord. I mean, the very moment that this boy is brought before the presence of Jesus, Luke tells us that the demon screams. The demon throws him to the ground in convulsion where he begins then to wallow and he begins to foam at the mouth. The father then explains that many times a demon has thrown him into the fire, thrown this boy into the water trying to destroy him. And even worse, the demon has made the boy deaf and unable to speak. One writer said this, this boy lives an aquarium-like existence. He can see what was going on around his pathetic body, but he cannot hear or speak. Again, just imagine the anguish this father was going through. But notice again verse 22. After explaining the horrible effects of the demon, the father says, but if you can do anything, Have compassion on us and help us. Notice that word, if. But if. And so the Father here questions the ability of the Lord. And he hopes that Jesus is a little more powerful or a little more wiser than the demon. But if you can do anything. Well, listen, though the Father's faith here is weak and small, he is at least looking in the right direction. Amen? He is at least asking the right person for help. And though his faith is small, at least he does have faith. Praise the Lord for that. Verse 23. Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So what does this tell us here? Divine ability is not the problem. Divine ability is not the problem. Human unbelief is the problem. And beloved, listen, there is a reliable bridge between human weakness on the one hand 
and divine power on the other. And that bridge that links the two together, human weakness and divine power, is faith. Faith. And when Jesus says to the Father, if you believe all things are possible, He is not saying work at having faith. That's not what Jesus is saying. And it is a great error. It is a great error to imagine that faith is something that we do. Or faith is something that we work up in ourselves. No, listen, that concept of faith, that that conceives a faith as a work that gets favorable attention from God. This thinks of faith as a muscle that if, if it's exercised enough, it gets bigger and it becomes stronger. This kind of faith is seen as some quantity within ourselves that we can just pile up. Jesus, rather, is talking about faith as that which looks to Him. Jesus is talking about a faith that looks to Him and trusts Him alone. And beloved, it is true that faith is always defined by its object. Faith is always defined by its object. Faith is never a thing in itself. Faith is trusting in or relying on Jesus. And the Father rightly understands this and He correctly responds, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And this Father also rightly understands where His faith comes from. When He says to the Lord Jesus, help my unbelief. He knows that the faith that He he has, though it is small, comes from the Lord. And He's asking the Lord, help me with my unbelief give me more faith subdue those areas lord where i do not trust you and give me more faith to believe notice verse 25 when jesus saw that the people came running together he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it deaf and dumb spirit that word dumb just means mute Unable to speak. I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. We see here the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where Jesus gives both positive commands and negative commands. The positive command is what? Come out of him. The negative command is what? Do not enter in him again. That's the authority of Jesus. And we notice in verse 26 that this release was an immediate release. Verse 26 says, Then the Spirit cried out. I mean, that that was a cry from the demonic hatred that this demon had for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit cried out and convulsed him greatly and came out of him. It was an immediate release. 
but also it was a total release. Again, verse 26 tells us, and he became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. This boy is dead. But notice verse 27. It says, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. I love that. I love that. Because in this we see, beloved, the difference between how Jesus treats this boy and how Satan treated him. You see that? The Savior, first of all, frees this boy. Then the Savior gently holds this boy's hand. The Savior then raises the boy. He lifts him up. And listen, if you are here and you are lost, you have never come to faith in Jesus Christ, understand that the way that Satan treats this boy is the exact way that Satan longs to treat you. That Satan hates you. As you bear witness to the very image of God. He wants to mistreat you. He is, listen, uh, 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 Satan is a horrible master. But Jesus, on the other hand, he cares. He loves. He's gentle. And Jesus is the one who says, Come unto me, all ye that that labor and are heavy laden. For I am meek and lowly. If you're not saved, look at the difference between how Jesus treated this young boy and how Jesus and how Satan treated this young boy. Notice thirdly, notice the solution for the saints. The solution for the disciples specifically here. We notice in verse number 28, and when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And let me just say, it's always a good thing to ask questions. That's what I get out of this. There's nothing wrong with asking a question. If you generally do not know an answer to something, ask. And this is very relevant for a pastor. If you are here and you have any question whatsoever about the faith, if you have any question about some worldview, that it is benefiting to you to ask. And trust those to whom the Lord has given you to be your overseers. And as Hebrews 13, 17 says, the, uh, to care for your souls. But I love that. The disciples ask the question. But they, the disciples ask and they realize that, that the failure that they had just realized was a public failure 
It was a public failure for Jesus' disciples. They, uh, they, they knew it cast doubt on their master. They knew that they hurt their testimony and the master's testimony. They were defeated. They were dejected. They were uh, downcast and discouraged. They had no answer for their enemies. Uh, they, they profess to represent Jesus, but they have no power over this demon. So I believe that this event here in Scripture is a picture of the present state of the world. That in this boy, we see a picture of the dominion of Satan and the power that he has to deceive people. And at different times in human history, there has always been different seasons of darkness and evil. There has been some seasons in the history of the world where darkness seemed to be greater and evil seemed to be greater in a, in a sense than at other times. And I believe that we are in a darker period right now. We are in a very evil period in our world right now. I mean, just look at what has happened the last 24 hours. We see a world that is a boiling pot right now. There's this sense of evil and darkness that has overspread the world. And in the disciples, we see a picture of the church and how she appears to be failing in her mission of breaking the power of Satan upon sinners. We live in a day where the church is most active but it is actively failing. The spiritual power that she knew in previous decades is now not present. New Testament history and church history record the triumphant advances of the church over the powers of hell, but that is not our experience in today's American church. We are not successful as in the days following Pentecost or in the days of the Reformation or in the days of the Great Awakenings. But yet we have so much more than what they had. But yet we have so much less to show for it. Why is that? What Jesus explains... In verse 29, so he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Now, when Jesus says to his disciples that this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting, he is not saying that it is not enough to believe you must also pray and fast. Jesus is not saying that. He's not saying that at all. Jesus is not adding prayer and fasting on top of believing. Now listen, it is a terrible error to imagine that prayer is a work that we do. Prayer is not a work that we do. Prayer, in reality, is a manifestation of faith. That's what prayer is. But notice, Jesus says to his disciples, this kind, this kind. 
In other words, the kind of satanic opposition that you're seeing with this boy is different from the kind that you faced previously in Mark chapter 3. And so this truth should speak to us as, as that there must be a real understanding of the problem that we're facing in the church today. The opposition that's facing the church is a different kind of opposition from that which we have seen in the past. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and specifically the church of the, of, in the uh, Western world, has always faced opposition, but never faced opposition to this level. This kind, he says to his disciples. Some reason, 75 years ago or so, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and especially the American church, changed its methodologies. We adopted a mindset of having more church activities and more church entertainment within the services and more programs and so forth. But beloved, listen, the church fails to understand the nature of the problem that we're dealing with. And I think it's healthy to do a comparison to earlier generations. I mean, listen, the great difference between today and 100 years ago is that people, 100 years ago, yes, they were in a state of apathy, but 100 years ago, there was no general denial of Christian truth. 100 years ago, there was a general acceptance that the Bible was the Word of God. All that was required a hundred years ago was to rouse them and to wake them out of their lethargy. But the problem confronting the church today is something that is much deeper than that, something much more desperate than what has faced the church for centuries. What we face today is a denial of absolute truth. What we face today is a denial of relevance of God. The very belief in God has virtually disappeared in America. We are living in a culture of atheists, some who are practicing atheists and those who are atheists in, uh, in just the way they live. They may say that they believe that there is a God, but the way they live indicates that they truly do not believe in the God of Scripture. Our society is one that Scripture denies, denies that Scripture is the inspired Word of God. And if God has any place in our culture or society, He is seen as an annoyance. And he is seen as he must go. We must rid our society of anything of holiness that has any attribution to the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. Jesus said, hey, this kind of opposition that you're facing now is not the kind of opposition that the generation that you faced 
previously. But notice what Jesus said in the next phrase, can come out. This kind can come out. Which reminds us of the scripture, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Amen? It can come out. Now what the disciples did before worked. But it does not work with this kind of satanic opposition. And beloved, listen, as it relates to the church, what worked in previous generations to break Satan's power is not working today. And it is obvious that so many of the things in which we trusted are proving to be of no avail. And when the church decades ago began to see a lull in the number of salvations, they began to do what? They began to change their methodology. And the trend was to use psychological pressure and manipulation to put guilt upon people. And so many of those who saw people walk down the aisles thought that they were so successful. But I would say to that, show me the fruit. Show me the fruit. They were believing in the methods and procedures. Notice, Jesus says, by nothing but prayer and fasting. Jesus did not say this kind can, can come out by changing your methods. This kind can come out by using uh, psychological pressure. No, this can come out by how? By prayer and fasting. That sounds boring, right? I mean, be honest. Sounds boring. If we were to have a conference on prayer and fasting, we'd probably have 20% of the church show up. If we had a conference on how to do more programs and how to do more events, we'd probably have the whole church show up. Sounds boring. But listen to me, a lack of faith is a result of a lack of prayer. And a lack of prayer is a result of a lack of faith. Why is it that we're so easy to do things and not do the main thing? Prayer recognizes that Jesus has all power. Now quickly understand that fasting does not make prayer more effective. Fasting makes prayer more intensive. The purpose of fasting is to, is to set aside something good that God has given to us in order to seek the Lord's wisdom, His guidance, His help, His deliverance for his glory. And beloved, listen, the church will continue to fail until she feels utterly, utterly desperate. Until she absolutely sees the need 
for the power of God's Spirit. We must realize that we are desperate. And I believe the Lord is finally allowing the church to wake up. I believe that. I believe there is an awakening going on. That the lull that we're seeing, that we're, or the rise we're seeing in the darkness and evil, God has brought us to such a point that he might bring us to our knees. And the church must turn from all of her methods and seek the living God. And the same is true, beloved, for you as an individual. The way to see revival is not some new method, but it is a reclaiming of the basics of life, the basics of the Christian faith, getting back to those things that we know is right and good, getting back to church attendance, getting back to praying. Because as, as I said, a lack of faith is, is, is a result of a lack of prayer, and a lack of prayer is a result of a lack of faith. The reason that we don't pray much as a church anymore and I'm speaking about the American church. It's because we lack faith. We lack faith. We have put our faith in, in, in things other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is showing. It's showing. Let's pray together. Our Father... Lord, what a tremendous application we can take from this text and applying it, Lord, to the satanic opposition that we're seeing today. That we are truly seeing a kind that as a country, as a Western civilization has not seen But Lord, it does not mean that it cannot be overcome. And we do know and we do trust that it will be overcome. One day. But Father, by faith, Lord, help us to trust you more. Lord, we're like that Father. We believe but Lord, help us with our unbelief. Help us to see that though we're having uh, some setbacks, some major setbacks in our American church, Lord, I, I believe that you can revive us. I believe you can. And you have the power to wake us up out of our slumber. And Lord, I pray that you bring us to our knees, not to adopt some new thing, but bring us to our knees that we would reclaim the old things that we know that you have called upon us to hold to and to cling to. Lord, you have 
said that the church is to be the house of prayer. And Father, I pray that we would be just that. And I pray that each individual home that is represented in this church, Lord, that they would lead their homes to be houses of prayer. Lord, help us to trust you. And Father, I pray that if one be here today that is lost, Father, I pray that they would have a glimpse of what their end would be if Satan were able to carry their soul to hell. And Lord, that they would then look to your Son, the Lord Jesus, who loved us so much that he demonstrated his love toward us even that even while we were yet sinners your son Jesus died for us that we'd look to him in salvation we would turn from our sin and trust him today lord it would be foolish for a person to leave here lost It'd be foolish for one to go throughout this day knowing that they're lost without calling upon your saving name to save them. Lord, I pray that you would. I pray that you bind Satan. You take the blinders off of them, but Lord, that they would come to you in faith and repentance. Father, we love you. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand as we sing.